0: just joining us, we've been recently in the Gospel of John, we've been seeing Jesus speak to his disciples about what they should expect after he ascends to heaven, after the cross and resurrection and and after he departs. And so here in John 17, Jesus prays that his disciples would be set apart for God's purposes and protected from the schemes of the evil one as they step out in faith in a new era in the church as the church is established And the mission of God to spread the gospel. That's kind of where we are today. Well, there's a a pastor and a theologian named Eugene Peterson, who passed away a few years ago. Uh, He wrote a book more than 40 years ago with a thought-provoking title that has stuck in my mind ever since I read it. The title of his book was called, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. Discipleship in an Instant Society. A long obedience in the same direction. This phrase has echoed in my mind for years as, and slowly reshaped my picture of the longevity and perseverance that's required for the Christian life. And just like these disciples in the upper room, who are about to be sent out by Jesus into a lost and broken world, Peterson, as he wrote this book, he says that each succeeding generation of Christians needs to deal with unique joys and challenges as we are sent out by Christ into the world. Now friends, there's certainly unique challenges to following Jesus in our generation, right? And Peterson's words from 40 years ago still ring true. This is what he says in his book. One aspect of the world that I've been able to identify as harmful to Christians is the assumption that anything worthwhile can be acquired at once. He says that Christians, we can sort of buy into this instant view of the world and he says that Christians can become impatient with results. That that we can adopt a lifestyle like a tourist who only wants the high points and we treat our church like a tour guide. But what if we changed our perspective? What if we stood as a contrast to this world of instant gratification, instant results, and instead embodied a long obedience in the same direction? A persistent and faithful walk with the Lord. Knowing that God is not in a hurry to bear fruit in your life, but he will prune you and he will cultivate your heart and your life for his glory. See, here's what we're going to see in our passage today. There's a word play going on in the text of John 17 using the concept of perseverance or of persistence, a notion of Keeping and protecting that comes up over and over again. These words keep and protect are repeated throughout this prayer of Jesus for his disciples. And it illuminates this sense of an important theological reality of being part of the mission of God. And of walking in a long obedience in the same direction. A sense of persisting and walking in faith. And so open your Bibles to John 17. Uh, Grab your Bible and look at the text with me. If you need a copy of the scriptures raise your hand. We'd love to have you follow along. John 17, we're going to pick it up in verse 6 and read the center, the middle of Jesus' high priestly prayer, verses 6 to 19. So follow along with me as I read. Jesus prays these words I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world, they were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine." And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture would be fulfilled. sanctify them by the truth your word is truth as you sent me into the world I have sent them into the world for them I sanctify myself that they too may truly may be truly sanctified amen this is the word of the Lord all right as we look at this text there's two imperatives or two requests that Jesus makes here in these verses. And and the first one is in verse 11, where Jesus prays, Holy Father, protect them. And then the second one, in verse 17, Jesus prays, sanctify them. So we're going to use these two central requests that form the heart of Jesus' prayer here for his disciples in order to understand what it means to walk in a long obedience in the same direction as we join in the mission of God. Okay, so let's look at those two, those two things. So let's look at the first one, that Jesus prays that the Father would protect the disciples, verse 11. Now, go back to verse 6. Um, so let's look at the flow of the text as it goes towards this request. Um, if you look at the beginning here in verse 6, the NIV, which I was reading from, has a footnote on the word you in that first line. And if you look at the bottom of the page of your Bible, you'll see that the original language, Greek, actually has the words, your name there. And so some of your Bibles keep that language. So Jesus, in other words, he prays, I have revealed your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. Now, this is really important to to notice or to, to point out because the concept of the name of God comes up later in the passage. In fact, this is deliberate and intentional. Okay, there's an interplay here with the notion that Jesus reveals the name of God. And later on in verses 11 and 12, that Jesus prays that they would be protected by the power of the name. Now, let's stop there because we need to talk for a moment about what's the significance of this. Why focus so much on this language of using the name, the name of God? Why talk about revealing a name or having power in a name? Well, if you go back to the ancient cultures, in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, it was believed that there was a mystical or spiritual power in the invoking of the name of a deity or an idol. It was also believed that often for kings or royal families, that there was authority in their name. There was something sacred about it. It was common for people to think of certain names as having mysterious power. Now, of course, that's that's sort of the secular culture around, around what was happening as God is revealing himself to his people. And so even more fundamental than that, even more fundamental is as we look at the Bible's account of history, it's clear that when the name of the triune and living God is invoked, that God has infinitely more power and is infinitely more worthy of worship than any other power. And so there truly is power in the name of God, not because uttering some specific word in in our human languages per se has power, but because there's something about it being derivative from God himself, God's manifestation of who he is. So let's, let's dig deeper into this concept of the name for a moment because I want you to, to notice a few things about who the name is revealed to and then we'll talk about more a little the, the biblical sort of theology of the name. So pick it up in verse 6. Okay, now that we see this word there, uh, he, Jesus prays, I have revealed your name to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. Now that Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me. And they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. And they believed that you sent me. He says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world. But for those you have given me. For they are yours. Jesus says, all I have is yours. And all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. There's a strong emphasis here. On the oneness of Father and Son. That Jesus reveals the Father, the Father gives to the Son, and the Son receives from the Father, and then in turn speaks the Father's words and brings about obedience to the Father, thus bringing what belongs to the Father back to him. There's this movement going on in this passage. There's a sense of the unified work of God in bringing these specific twelve disciples to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as truly the Messiah. Now, I'll just say this cuz Jesus is praying specifically for these 12 that are sitting in front of him, but the same is true of these disciples is true of you and me when we are disciples of Jesus Christ. You belong to God. Let that sink in for a moment. You belong to God. This is a most profound truth. When you are a Christian, you are no longer the king or queen of your own life. You must die to self, take up your cross and follow Jesus, the true king. And, and so you let go of selfish control of your life and, and he will redeem and preserve you. It reminds me, and we've, we've used this or read this before, it reminds me of the opening lines of the Heidelberg Catechism. This is the opening question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. And because I belong to Jesus Christ, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Friends, you need to know this. A long obedience in the same direction must start with the realization that you are not your own. Rather, you must realize that you belong in body and soul, in life and in death to Jesus Christ. That obedience begins with surrender. It begins with trust. Realizing that you need to get off the throne of your life. See, I want you to notice some important words that are in our text here that I mentioned earlier would be repeating throughout this passage. Okay, go now as we look at verses 6 to 8 that describe these disciples. There are some words that repeat. So as we just skim through those words I read, we see that the disciples are those who have obeyed God's word. They know that everything comes from God. They've accepted the words of Jesus. They believe that Jesus is sent from the Father, taken together. These are words of surrender. These are words of trust. And yet the dominant word here is this word obey. And and I I want to point it out specifically because it it ties together to some of the later words that are used. So this word obey in verse 6, it's a particular word that is sometimes translated as the word keep. And some of your Bibles say that. That we have kept, the disciples have kept the word Obeyed the word. See, this word is frequently in the Bible. There's this notion of keeping God's word means to persist in walking in obedience in God's ways. It's exactly the sense we were talking earlier of a long obedience in the same direction. To persist, to keep walking in God's ways. Now, it doesn't mean the disciples are perfect. Okay, if you stop for a second and you look at what you just read through the Gospel of John and if you know the other Gospels, you watch the disciples fumbling around and stumbling, speaking words that, that are un, like missing the point. They don't understand sometimes. You see that they have doubted and tried to the best of their ability. And, and Jesus says here in John 17, he looks at them and says, you have persisted. In sticking with me. And there's a play on words that comes in. Because this very same word to keep or to persist. Is used in verse 11 when Jesus says. Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name. This word protect is the same word keep. But it has a different meaning. It has a different has a different angle on it because here Jesus gives a totally different emphasis. It means to guard or preserve or to keep unharmed. And there's a deliberate connection or layering going on here. In other words, the disciples have persisted in walking in trust, in surrender to Jesus. But have they really done that on their own strength? Has it been their own knowledge that has helped them understand? Has it been their own like transformed and soft hearts that have made that possible under their own power. You see, when you think about it more deeply, what Jesus is pointing out is he's asking this question, who is the ultimate source of their persistence? The ultimate protector, the ultimate preserver, the ultimate one who guides and guards these disciples in their long obedience in the same direction. It is God himself. He's the ultimate persister, the one who ensures that we will be preserved until the end. And so as we simply walk by faith, we have hands open to receive and soft hearts to call upon God for his provision and protection. This is where we get back to that notion of the name of God. See, Jesus plays these words on purpose. He says, you've kept, you've kept going disciples, but do you realize that God is the one working in you? I'm praying for him to keep in guard and persist and work in your life. And we get back to this notion of the name because he prays in verse 11 that the father would protect and keep these disciples by the power of your name. The name you gave me, Jesus says, so that they may be one as we are one. This is a culmination of a trajectory of in the Bible of people calling on the name of the Lord. I want you to hear this. I'm going to walk you through for about two minutes here. The trajectories, we go back to the beginning of scripture of what it means in this flow of the text of the Bible to call upon the name of the Lord. If you go all the way back to the beginning Genesis chapter 4, right after sin enters and we see the curse of sin over all creation. The first generations who come after the entrance of sin in the world, there's a new phrase that is introduced there at the end of chapter 4. Or at the end of 3 and 4. It says, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And then in Genesis 12, after Abraham received God's redemptive promises, he set up an altar at Bethel. And the text says that he called upon the name of the Lord. Genesis 26, Isaac, his son, later confirms the promise to his father, Abraham. He builds an altar also and calls upon the name of the Lord. We see examples of this in 1 Kings 18. When Elijah confronts the prophets of Baal, they they called upon the name of their gods and nothing happened. And then Elijah calls upon the name of the Lord and God rains down fire and destroys the altars and proves that he's the only God. We see this in the Psalms, Psalm 116. The psalmist cries out to the name of the Lord that in the name of the Lord in his distress and sorrow, the Lord graciously brings salvation and protection. And then Jeremiah and Joel, the prophets. Jeremiah prophesies of a day when the faithless will return. Jeremiah 3. And they will call upon the name of the Lord. As the nations gather to honor God. And then Joel chapter 2. Joel looks ahead to a day when there will be an outpouring of the spirit of God. And that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's what Peter preaches at Pentecost. You see, friends, this calling on the name of the Lord is a trajectory across the whole Bible, and it is fulfilled in Jesus. As the Apostle Paul, who who draws on this same passage in the, in the uh, in the, the prophet Joel, he writes in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 13, these words. If you declare with your mouth... Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And Paul goes on just a few lines later to say the Lord of all. Jesus is the Lord of all and he richly blesses all those who call upon him. And he quotes Joel 2: everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You see, what we've seen so far in the Gospel of John is that Jesus reveals the Father to us. He speaks the very words of God. He is the fullness of deity in bodily form. He is the name above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In other words, when we see this biblical trajectory of calling on the name of the Lord in its fullness, you have to hear this, friends. To call on the name of the Lord in the post-incarnation post-cross, post-resurrection reality, is to call upon the name of Jesus. When, when you see this calling on the name of the Lord in the scriptures, now it is through Christ. There is power in his name. You see, the only, I'm gonna, maybe I'll put it a different way, the only preserving and protecting power worth trusting is God's power through his son, Jesus Christ. The only power, the only preserving and protecting power worth trusting is God's power through his son. The text is so clear here, friends. When we know Jesus, we don't belong here in this world anymore. God is preserving us for his kingdom and for his glory. And yet we still find ourselves in difficult situations. We still will experience failure in this life. We will frequently encounter opposition in our long obedience in the same direction. So what is the result? What what does Jesus point out in the middle of this? The result is that there is joy. There is joy in these truths. Remember, Jesus is praying these things over his disciples. He's about to go to the cross. And yet he says in verse 13, if you look at your text there, that he wants the fullness of the full measure of his joy to be with his disciples. The full measure, friends, not a little joy, but a lot of joy. You see, I've said this before. We need a joy that does not come from circumstances. If our joy came from circumstances, then Jesus would have prayed that his disciples would be taken out of the world. He would have said something like, man, there's a lot of hard times ahead. Oh, Father, please remove my disciples from these difficult times. That is not what he prays. Rather, he prays this. Listen to verse 15 and following the source of joy, where we understand where uh, Jesus, why Jesus prays that the fullness of joy would come. We see it here in the second request that he offers. So let's go to that second request now, verse 17, that Jesus prays that the father would sanctify his disciples. Let me just cut to the chase here. Our joy comes from a realization that God has set us apart for his purposes and his glory realizing that I am not my own brings a sense of profound joy and this word sanctify is where we get the word holy We often see the word sanctify when we talk about God's redemptive work in us to wash us clean from our sin, to to, to make our hearts new in God's sight by forgiving our sins. That is certainly how this word sanctify is used in the Bible. But in this context, this word sanctify simply means to set apart for God's holy purpose. To set apart. For God's holy purposes. There is this sense of mission. A sense of action. A sense of an outward focus as we're sent into the world. Jesus uses that very language here. Sanctify them by the word of truth. Because he says, I've been sent into the world and I send them into the world. There is a sense of mission here. In other words, to be sanctified for God's holy purpose is to join in the mission of God to spread the good news of Jesus Christ and his kingdom in our local communities and across the globe. To be set apart is to be a community of faith that takes the mission of who Jesus is and what he has done out into the world. This sanctifying is founded on the truth of God's word, as Jesus says here. The mission is the proclamation of the gospel so that more people will become disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, remember, these disciples are, these 12 disciples are sitting here listening to Jesus' prayer and they're about to be sent in a matter of weeks to go to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's Acts chapter 1. They're going to go out into the world to tell people about the risen Christ And we know from the book of Acts that they have been set apart, that they're sanctified for a holy purpose, to be a gospel witness as we seek to fulfill the Great Commission. They're not removed from the world, but in fact have a special purpose for being in the world. We see this elsewhere in the Bible, to be salt and light, to be ambassadors of another kingdom, to be witnesses in word and deed that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And while they embark on this holy task, I want you to see this in this prayer. So profound. As Jesus sends his disciples, he says, God will protect you. I'm not asking to have difficulties removed. What I'm asking is that the heavenly father will preserve you, will guard you, will keep you till the end. Friends, here's what I want to ask. Do you want to know the full measure of the joy of Jesus? Do you want to know this full measure of joy that Jesus speaks about? What I want you to know is that true joy comes from experiencing the preserving, protecting power of God while being used for his holy purposes in his mission in a broken world. It's not comfort removed from all the difficulties. It's watching God work in the midst of the difficulties. That's where joy comes from. So what you will find is that God will give you strength to face relational conflict with grace and patience and you will find joy growing in your heart. As God gives you encouraging words to say to a friend who's depressed, you'll find joy growing in your heart. As God uses you to speak truth in a situation where there is confusion and lies, you'll find joy growing in your heart. As God helps you endure suffering or persecution with real hope and trust, you will find joy growing in your heart. And as God reveals the full extent of Christ's love for you. Even while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. And as you share that with others, joy will grow in your heart. See, in all these ways and more, as God places us, as he places you, In your family, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, for his holy purposes, even if it's difficult, even if it causes you to suffer for the name of Jesus, may we never lose the joy of knowing that our Heavenly Father will preserve and protect and guard and keep you by the power of his name. Let's pray. Lord, take these words Um, From your prayer in John 17, sink them deep into our hearts, Lord. I'm certain as I look across this room, knowing the joys and struggles that we're encountering. I pray that as, as we see here, that you would encourage us to know that our Heavenly Father is guarding and protecting and preserving us. That the power of the name of God... By the power of the name of God, we, we can walk in, in, in this long obedience in the same direction. That we are guarded and protected from the evil one. That you will preserve us to the end. And so, Lord, give us joy in those realities. And as we pray about even just thinking about where we serve or where we live or the people we know who aren't believers, the way that we're sent into the world. Or as we pray specifically about our missionaries now. Change our perspective. That we would not be like those seeking results quickly, instant gratification, a Christian tourist. But instead walking in a long obedience in the same direction and faithfulness with you as you preserve us. As you keep us. So we pray for that as we walk in joy with you in Jesus name.